Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, hello, New York Rangers fans, and welcome to episode 71 of the New Ice City Podcast, the first episode of New Ice City Podcast that is fully invested in a playoff series. Here we are on Wednesday, May 4th. The Rangers played game one of their first round series against the Pittsburgh Penguins last night. Tuesday night. This podcast will come out on Thursday, so two nights ago by the time you listen to this. Looking ahead to game two now, and there is a lot to discuss. A lot to discuss. I I really couldn't think of of a game that would have given us more to dissect than we got in game one. What a night it was. The garden was rocking. I sent out a video on Twitter and on Instagram before the game at the end of the national anthem when the place was going absolutely bonkers. Energy in the building was really cool all night. The place was in a frenzy, especially with a couple of the late Rangers goals. The place was shaking when Chris Kreider scored that shorthanded goal. Also shaking when Philip Hedl scored a goal that ended up not being a goal that we're going to end up talking about a lot on this episode because I think that has been the hottest topic to come out of game one. It had a little bit of everything, though. The Rangers played really well for stretches. The Rangers played poorly for stretches. We end up with three overtimes, over 100 minutes of hockey in total, an absolute marathon. (laughs) Really not ideal from a player's perspective because those guys all had to log so many minutes in that first game, and you really wonder how it's going to affect them moving forward as we look ahead to the rest of the series because they only played one game Looks like it could be a longer series than maybe some of us anticipated based on how close it was, how competitive it was, how much of a battle it was. And the Rangers come out of it down 0-1 in this series. Now, a lot of you who were watching the game probably felt like if you were looking at the Rangers and the way that they played in that first period... This could be a short series. I know in the back of my mind it was there. I know some other writers. I was sitting in the press box were were saying it. It just felt like the Rangers absolutely dominated the early going in that period. They They were flying around. I would say unlike any time we've seen previously this season. We've seen them play some really good games this season. But they just looked like they had some extra oomph, some extra juice. The forecheck was relentless. They were laying dudes out. And I mean everybody. We even saw like Adam Fox dishing out hits, Alexi Lafreniere, of course, Ryan Reeves, Ryan Lindgren. I I mean, everybody was physically engaged, playing fast, aggressive. The forecheck was exactly what you know Gerard Gallant wants it to be. And it just felt like the Rangers were smothering them. It it felt like they were completely in control. They come out of the first period with a 1-0 lead. They get a quick goal on the power play from Adam Fox. Felt like they could have had even even more of a lead coming out of that first period. I actually thought Casey DeSmith, the backup goalie for the Penguins, played pretty well to keep the score manageable early in the game. But then the Rangers come out in the second. They get a quick goal from Andrew Kopp. And you're thinking, okay, it looks like they're going to roll in this one. But things completely shifted from that point forward. The Rangers went from completely dictating the pace of the game and being completely on top of the Penguins for, yeah, definitely the first 15 minutes. I know that they're saying uh, 25 is what the number that Gallant and a lot of the players have thrown out. And that's fair enough because 25 minutes into the game, they were leading 2-0. But you sensed things shifting in the Penguins' direction. And you noticed quite glaringly that all of a sudden when the Rangers had controlled possession and controlled the game and their forecheck wasn't giving the Penguins much space to work with, 
all of a sudden it felt like Pittsburgh had a lot of offensive zone time. Pittsburgh was rattling off one shot on goal after another. There was a stretch when the Penguins outshot the Rangers 33 to 12. This is a Rangers team that we've talked about before since the trade deadline had really reversed that trend. We saw them giving up way too many shots and scoring chances for the first few months of the season, but the last month plus, maybe even two months of the season, you could say, they were one of the better teams in the league when you look at the numbers as far as what they were allowing defensively. So they end up allowing 45 shots in regulation, 83 shots in total over the course of five plus periods. Igor Shesterkin makes 79 saves, blew away the previous franchise record of 56 for the Rangers. He did everything he could to keep the Rangers in this game, but ultimately they come out short because of a third overtime goal from Evgeny Malkin. He gets a deflection from in front. You really can't blame Igor for that at all. It was just one of those goals. It was like a fluky kind of thing that eventually somebody had to score because it had just been back and forth for so long. And it was starting to feel like the overtimes were just going to drag on forever. We had no idea what time we were going to get out of there. I didn't end up walking into my door getting home from the game after finishing my you know press conferences and writing and all that stuff. It was around... 2, 2.15 in the morning, definitely after 2 a.m. I don't think I, I fell asleep until close to 3. And then, of course, little V has no regard for how late daddy stayed up the night before because the little guy was up at 6.20. So I can tell you guys I am running on fumes. I can only imagine how the players felt. They did not practice today. They were planning to practice on Wednesday, but Gallant decided no way after that game the night before. They're also not doing a morning skate now, I've heard. For Thursday morning. So right now the primary focus is on letting those guys rest, recover, hydrate, do everything that they can to get their bodies right for game two. Because game two is awfully, awfully important for the New York Rangers now. Because the last thing that they want is to go back to Pittsburgh for game three in an 0-2 hole. We're gonna we're gonna talk about looking ahead to game two a lot, but of course. The turning point in this game, I mean, the turning point, the first turning point was the second period where the Rangers had a 2-0 lead, and then all of a sudden they gave up three goals to the Penguins and looked like a totally different team from the one we saw in the first period. That is the, the point of emphasis. That is the biggest takeaway from this game is that the Rangers could not sustain that heavy forechecking, that relentless speed, that pressure system that they had been so effective with in the first period. It really dissipated in the second period, and the Rangers, I think, got away from their game, and that is by far the biggest reason that they lost this game. But of course, I know the topic that we need to discuss, that everybody has been talking about, is that late goal with just over three minutes to go in the third period that was set up by Capo Caco, scored by Philip Heedle, that resulted in another situation where the press box was shaking at Madison Square Garden. And listen, I went right into my computer and started writing a top to the story that was going to be all about how the kid line got it done crunch time. It would have been a great story. The The place was going bonkers. I'm sure those of you that were watching at home were going crazy. It felt like such a feel-good moment for the Rangers. But quickly, you see the replay. You see the Penguins ask for a challenge. You see the officials go onto the headset to have the conversation with the Situation Room in in Toronto. And again, I want to stress to everybody because I think a lot of people don't understand this or aren't aware of this, but it is not the referees on the ice who are calling the game that review this call. It is the Situation Room with league officials in Toronto who review the play from all different angles and make the call. And here's the reality of the situation, because Penguins fans are swearing that the call was right. Rangers fans are swearing that the call was atrocious. It's a gray area. There really is no right answer. And I've talked to so many people about this in the last, it hasn't even been 24 hours at the point that I'm recording this, but I've talked to so many people about this in the last however many hours. And there are some people who have said, I'm a little surprised that they overturned it. I thought the goal should have stood. I've also heard from some people who are adamant that it was goal interference, but the general consensus with everybody, or not everybody, but most of the people that I've spoken to 
And this includes objective parties. It's not just people from the league. It's not just people from the Rangers. It's not just people from one side or another. Is that it's a really, really, really tough call to make. You, you have to you have to look at the play, right? Kako is clearly tracking his path is going directly toward Casey DeSmith. If he keeps skating in a straight line, he is going to hit the goalie and it's a clear goalie interference call. Now, the counter argument is that if you freeze frame the replay, Kako is clearly turning his skates to the left and is attempting to make a move to avoid contact with the goalie. Now, he's attempting this move really late in the game. He's like a foot or so outside of the crease when those skates start to turn. But then the added wrinkle or the added wrench in this whole discussion is Brian Dumoulin, the defenseman from the Penguins, who clearly makes contact with Kako and certainly increases his chances of hitting the Smith, which he does. And it moves the Smith out of the goal. Now Kako stays with the play, makes a really, really good play on his own right to stay with the puck, keep control of it while he's flat on his stomach on the ice and push a pass back to Heedle, who has a wide open net and scores what looks to be the game winning goal. I really believe the more that you look at it, you, you, you get the outrage from Rangers fans. Absolutely. And there's there's a legitimate argument in the Rangers case to have the goal stand because of the contact with Dumoulin. There's no doubt about that. But you also can't look at that play and definitively say that had there been no contact with Dumoulin, that Kaka would have been able to avoid the goalie. Again, if you're drawing a straight line where he's skating, he's going to hit that goalie. And even if he's able to to make the move that it looks like he's attempting to make when he's right outside of the crease, he would have had a turn at almost an exact 90-degree angle to completely avoid contact with the goalie. I'm not saying he couldn't have done that, but I also can't sit here and say absolutely that he would have been able to avoid the contact. It comes down to a subjective judgment call, and that's what sucks about this. It's it's a gray area. I, I can read the rule to you right here. It says... I'll quote, if an attacking player initiates contact with a goalkeeper, incidental or otherwise, while the goalkeeper is in his crease and a goal is scored, the goal will be disallowed. Okay, so based on that, it's goalie interference. But then there's a subsection which says, if an attacking player has been pushed, shoved, or fouled by a defending player so as to cause him to come into contact with the goalkeeper, such contact will not be deemed to be contact initiated by the attacking player for the purposes of this rule, providing the attacking player has made a reasonable effort to avoid such contact. So then you could look at the play and say, okay, well, Dumoulin did push him or shove him. It wasn't called a foul. I don't know. I think he was trying to play defense. I don't think there was necessarily a penalty that should have been called on the play, but he quite clearly pushes or shoves him, whichever one you want to label it. So, at this point, the judgment needs to be made. Would Kako have hit the goalie or not had that contact not been made? That is the decision that the league in the situation room was trying to make. And I I think it's a toss-up. I don't think I can sit here and say absolutely yes or absolutely no. And that's pretty much what a lot of people I've talked to have said. And and ultimately, my understanding is that the decision was made because they believe that Kako's path was heading toward the goalie and it was going to be goalie interference, whether the contact was made or not. You can argue to the cows come home that he would have avoided it, but you're, you're not being entirely truthful if you are thinking that there's a hundred percent certainty that he would have been able to avoid it because I don't think anybody can justify that or verify that with certainty if the roles were reversed and i think this is a good way for rangers fans who are upset about this to, to think about it if the roles were reversed and it was whether it's Sidney crosby or evan rodriguez or anybody in between as far as the pittsburgh players go if there's a pittsburgh player who got tangled up with adam fox or jacob truba or whoever on their way to the goal and was clearly tracking toward the goal 
and then ran into Igor on the same play, and it resulted in a goal that late in the game that would have been a game-winning goal for the Penguins. If we're being honest with ourselves, I know a lot of you would have been livid if that call went against the Rangers. So this is where the emotions and the biases come into play. I, I love the passion from you guys, and I know a lot of you came at me hard on Twitter and were mad because I, I, I said that it looked like a call that could end up getting overturned. It was, and then I explained what I heard about why it was why it was overturned. Listen, I you know you can shoot the messenger all you want. Trust me, the NHL did not call me and ask for my opinion before they made a final decision, but. I tweeted right away when I saw it that I would not be surprised if that got overturned because you could see how they might rule it goalie interference. I love the passion from you guys. I'm happy to take the heat. Comes with the territory. It sort of makes this time of year fun. But I think some perspective is needed. You, as a fan, are going to have emotional ties to the call, whether it goes against your team or for your team. So if you were in Pittsburgh's shoes and that was your goalie, I know a lot of Rangers fans would have been arguing that the call should be disallowed and vice versa. It goes both ways. It's, it's, it's nobody's fault, but it's just, it's inherent bias that comes with being a fan. And objectively to me, I really do believe that when Gallant and Strom and a lot of other people have said, it looks like a 50, 50 call. I don't think there's a right answer. I can sit here and bang the desk and say that should have been a goal. The Rangers got robbed, but I can see the argument on the other side. I can also sit here and say, oh, that absolutely should have been goalie interference. You guys are crazy. But I don't think that that's entirely truthful either. The the rule forces you to make a decision. It's not an objective decision. It's a subjective decision. It's a decision based on your opinion of something that didn't happen and may or may not have, have happened if the defenseman didn't make contact with Kako. So... We've talked about this a while. I'm probably talking in circles and repeating myself a little bit, but this is all to say that it's a tough way for the game to end. It's a very, very bitter way for the Rangers to ultimately end up losing that game and feeling like they had the win right within their grasp. So listen, I feel for you guys. It's it's not a fun way to lose at all. And the call very easily could have went your way. But I I don't think this was an egregious mistake. I don't think this was an obvious blown call where there was no justification whatsoever for them disallowing it. I looked at it in the moment and I've looked at the replay, I don't know how many times, and I've asked for several different opinions. And I just keep coming back to saying, I don't know. I can't say that Kako would have avoided him for sure if he didn't get hit. And I can't say that Kako would have hit him for sure if there was no contact with the defenseman. It looks like it would have been really, really close, and that makes this a really, really close call. The overturn thing, too, is is the final thing that I want to address here. And I asked about this as well, because I think a lot of people think of NFL football replay review. And the NFL has clear language in their rules that states, if the review is inconclusive, then the call on the field will stand. But the NHL does not have any language, to my knowledge. Now, somebody point out if I'm wrong, but I asked a few people about this. The NHL, to my knowledge, does not have any language that says when a play like that is reviewed, they defer to the call on the ice if they think it's close. So my understanding is that when it went to the review, they just had to look at the play and make a determination. Even if it was 51% one way and 49% the other way, they were going to go with the 51%. And so I I think the NFL and their language with the inconclusive stuff made everybody sort of think that, oh, you got to stick with the call on the ice here. But ultimately, my understanding is that when it went to the league office or went to the situation room, I should say, that they looked at it and they leaned one way because they thought Kako's path was tracking toward the goalie. And that's why the decision was made. I know a lot of people otherwise are still upset with the officials and still blaming the refs for for the result of this game. That call notwithstanding, part of that is the fact that the Rangers only got one power play in five plus periods of hockey. Now, you you could certainly look for areas where maybe a call should have went in the Rangers' favor. There's nothing, honestly, that really jumped out in my mind where the ref obviously missed a call. I did think the boarding call on Truba that led to the five on three where the Penguins ended up getting a goal in the second period, a really key goal in the second period, which tied the score at 3-3. 
I did think that the boarding call on Truba was not the strongest call I've seen for sure. But the call before that, the first penalty in that situation on Patrick Nemeth for holding, I thought was pretty obvious. I thought Nemeth deserved that call. I can also point to situations where it it wasn't like the Rangers necessarily got screwed, which I know is a narrative out there. Ryan Lindgren gets called for the major on the hit on Ricard Raquel, which then they review and they downgrade to a minor. I also asked about this. I did not know this until recently. When they review a play that was called a major, and all majors are automatic reviews, the best case they can do is downgrade to a minor. They cannot waive the call completely. That's not allowed in the rules. It might seem silly. Maybe they should look at changing that. I do think the NHL needs to do a better job of spelling these rules out and and working on the definitions because there's a lot of gray area, as we've discussed. But in that situation, the best thing that they could do for the Rangers was downgrade the major to a minor, which they did. And I know there's a lot of people in Pittsburgh who felt like it should have stayed a major because Lindgren if you see him follow through, comes off of his feet a little bit. Now, I've heard people say, you know, he didn't come off his feet till after the hit instead of coming off his feet before the hit. Whatever. We, we can nitpick that all you want. In the moment, I thought it looked like a, a good, clean, really hard hit. But when you watch the replay, you do see him come off of his skates a little bit. So, you know, I don't think a penalty there is a completely egregious thing either. And again, they had a chance to keep it at a major. They reviewed it and they downgraded to a minor, which helped out the Rangers. And then another thing that comes to mind, if we're just trying to find situations where penalties could have been called, is Ryan Reeves absolutely annihilated John Marino well after the puck had been out of play. And I thought that that could have been a roughing call or a boarding call because the guy was pretty vulnerable and the puck was nowhere near him. And the Rangers didn't get called on that. So listen, are the refs perfect? No. I think that they make tons of mistakes, but there there are mistakes that I saw during the season that jumped out to me a lot more than anything that I saw in that game. And from the third period on, the referees really let them play. There were no penalties called on either side in overtime. And even on the Heedle goal, the call on the ice was no no whistle. There was no that they let that play stand. It wasn't until it was challenged and then reviewed by the situation room that they overturned it. So I just feel like this narrative that the the refs are to blame and the Rangers would have won this game if it weren't for the referees. It just it just feels like a cop out to me. If if you watched this game, to me, the Rangers only have themselves to blame for not keeping their foot on the gas pedal after that first period. You look at look at the scoring chance reports. Look at the expected goals rates in that game. I know Valley tweeted out the chart and you can go on Natural Stat Trick and a lot of other places. The Rangers gave up more shots, more scoring chances, more high dangerous scoring chances. The Rangers were outplayed for a larger portion of this game than the portion where they outplayed the Penguins. They had 20-25 minutes where they looked really good and then the rest of the game the Penguins were mostly the better team. So, I don't think that the Rangers necessarily deserved to win this game. And while we can nitpick referee calls, and listen, I'm sure over the course of this postseason, we're going to see some bad calls from the referees. I just did not find game one to be a situation where we should be throwing our hands in the air and saying the Rangers got screwed. The Hedo goal call, admittedly a really, really tough one and a hard pill to swallow and definitely one that I think you could argue should have gone in the Rangers' favor. But there's an argument the other way in that situation, too. And the prevailing message from the Rangers, both after the game and then Wednesday following the media availability or during the media availability, I should say, is we can't dwell on this. We need to move on. If they're worried about what happened in game one, that's not going to help them at all in game two. They need to learn lessons from it. Absolutely. They need to figure out how they can sustain that high pressure for check and all the speed that they were playing with early in the game. I think that that is going to be a real key for this team moving forward. I think figuring out how to stop that top line of Pittsburgh's with Crosby and Rust and Jake Gensel, who I thought had a really good game for the Penguins on top of just scoring two goals for them. That line completely had its way with the Rangers and and was definitely the best line between the two teams on Tuesday night. So the Rangers need to figure out a way to stop that. And they need to figure out a way to win game two because their backs are up against the wall a little bit right now. 
you can get over that game one loss if, if you come back and win in game two. But if the Rangers lose in game two on Thursday night, it's going to be a really tough road to figure out how they're going to end up winning this series. So a must win might be a little bit of a stretch because obviously if they go down 0-2, they still have to lose two more to end up going home. But it's not a situation you want to be in. So I, I think there's a whole lot of importance on this game from a Rangers perspective. And and they got to do everything in their power to come out with a win on Thursday night. That might be stating the obvious, but that is certainly the feeling within that building. And Gerard Gallant today, his message was move on from game one and let's just get ourselves completely focused on game two and doing everything that we can to win that game. A couple of quick updates before we get to our interview. I don't even remember if I if I teased this in the beginning of the show. I'm, I'm so focused on the game that I forgot to tease our guest. Matt Vensel, you guys have heard him on the show before. He, he's my go-to guy for all Pittsburgh Penguins stuff from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. So him and I are going to break down the game a little bit, talk about what it meant from a Penguin standpoint, talk about some of the stuff that happened in that game and what it means for the series going forward. But for the Rangers... One thing that I wanted to mention as far as injury news is concerned is that Ryan Lindgren, who played for first almost two full periods, came out of the game at the end of the second, did not play for most of the third, gutted his way back into the game, played for two overtime periods, and then did not come out to start the third overtime period with what the Rangers are calling a lower body injury. Definitely a concern, but Gallant Down played it today. He said that he's, quote, banged up, but that he expects him to play for game two. That's definitely something we need to keep an eye on. But the word from the Rangers right now is that Lindgren will play on Thursday night. And other than that, you just got to do everything you can to, to make sure that these guys who played a ton of minutes. I mean, Igor was on the ice for all five plus periods and, and faced 83 shots. I, what an incredible performance from him. We barely even touched on that. But, I'm, I mean, this dude is just – he looked playoff ready to me. He gave the Rangers every chance to win that game. Again, the Rangers were outplayed for more of that game than the first period where, where they played really well might have led us to believe. And then Igor did his best to, to will them to a victory from that point forward. He was definitely the biggest positive to come out of that game. I did think that some of the kids did really well for themselves. The kid line, not just the goal or the non-goal that Hedl and Kako created, but Lafreniere, to me, looked like he looked faster than I've ever seen him before. He was flying. He was dishing out hits. They were really good on the forecheck. Hedl was playing really fast. Kako, I thought, got better as the game went on, at least in regulation. They all looked tired by the time we got deeper into overtime especially Kako having not played so much recently. You have to imagine his legs felt really heavy at the end of that game. But overall, the kid line performed much better than I think a lot of people expected. And you certainly want to see if they can build on that moving forward. I also thought Keandre Miller had a really good game. He tied Adam Fox among the Rangers skaters for most minutes played. Those guys played like 45 minutes, which is just nuts. Braden Schneider, I thought, hung in there pretty well for a rookie in his first playoff game. So, so there are definitely some positives and some things you could build on coming out of this for the Rangers, but they have to find an answer for that Crosby line. The scoring chances against, think, get this number, there's one last number I'll give you before we get to Matt. The scoring chances against for that Pittsburgh line was 30 to 2. They generated 30 scoring chances while they were on the ice and only allowed two. They were by far the biggest difference in this game, in that game. So the Rangers need to find a way to stop Crosby and Gensel in particular. Rust is kind of the third wheel on that line, but he had a, he had a good game for himself as well. You got to make sure Ryan Lindgren's hurt. I mean, not hurt. You got to make sure that, you know, you can get him as right as possible. And then finding a way to sustain that pressure. If the Rangers can play like they did in the first period over the course of a full 60, they're going to win this series. So, those, to me, are, are the main lessons you need to learn, points of emphasis moving forward, and keys to the Rangers bouncing back. So with that, we've talked for a half hour now. Let's get to our interview with Matt. I'm going to be back for the final segment. Hit on a couple of your Twitter questions really quick because this is already going to be a long episode, but I will answer a few of them in the final segment. But first, let's talk a little more Penguins and Rangers with our guest, Matt Venzel.
And now let's welcome back to the show a familiar guest. We might as well start calling him our Pittsburgh Penguins correspondent, and that would be Matt Vensel from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. So, Matt, how are you doing? Are you as tired as I am today? Vince, I'm doing great. Well, it's almost noon here in New York. I'm running on caffeine. If you check back around like 5 p.m. after I run through Central Park, um, it's going to be a different story, but uh, I'm running on adrenaline and coffee right now. Running through Central Park after a triple overtime marathon, you are a better man than me because I will not be doing anything like that today. Yeah, I, uh, I'm just trying not to be like completely husky for my wife at the end of a hockey season. So I'm, I'm doing the best I can. That is that that is great. I, I respect that. I am very much planning once the season is over to get back in the gym groove, but I have not been great about it in the last, especially month or two, like since like really up to the trade deadline, I feel like I've just had no free time, but anyway, it comes with the territory. It's fun. Last night at Madison square garden was a lot of fun, much more fun. If you were a penguins fan than a Rangers fan, of course, everybody knows what happened. Rangers end up losing four to three in triple overtime. Malkin scores the deflection goal in front to end it. Igor was outstanding, but a lot of the, the top guys for the Penguins, I thought, were outstanding as well. So I, I want to get into some specifics because there's so much to go over from that game. But from a Penguins perspective, what jumps out to you? Like what comes to your mind first and foremost when you think about what happened in game one? Well, I mean, the first 25 minutes of the game, it like we were, you know, the fellow Penguins reporters were all kind of like joking around about, oh, my God, this could, this could be a Rangers sweep because the Rangers just pounded them in the first period. Um, you know, cops scored to make it two nothing. And really, I mean, Shesterkin made that save on Latang on a two on one. And it almost felt like everybody exhaled for a second. And that's when Gensel made it two one. And I, I think the Crosby line, which really has been, you know, Crosby, Jake Gensel, they've, they've disappointed the last three postseasons relative to expectations. But I thought that line turned the game around for the Penguins and, you know, went from being all Rangers to you look up at the shot clock at MSG and it's like, how the heck do these guys have 30 shots? And they just kept pouring it on. And then Shesterkin was spectacular. I just wrote a story um, about him today to let our readers know, like, what makes him so good. Um, He was great. And then for the Penguins, you know, the goalie situation is, is of great intrigue because, Tristan Jari isn't going to play in game two. He is in New York. Um, he's out of a walking boot. We'll see if he gets on the ice. And then the Smith comes in, plays pretty well, and then gets hurt. And then they have Louis Deming, uh, third string goalie, a guy who like kind of thought his career was over this time a, a year ago. He wasn't getting many offers. Um, he's thrust in and becomes a bit of a, a playoff hero for the Penguins there. So I don't know what it means. I don't know where they go from here. I mean, obviously – um, the Penguins had to feel good about how they played after the first period. But, um, you know, I don't think this, uh, you know, I, I think this series is going to be a great series. It's, it's probably going to go six or seven games. Deming, a lefty, threw me off a little bit. You're not too used to seeing lefty goalies like that. But, I mean, that spot in the game, he's the third stringer, comes in ice cold. In, I mean, I'm thinking if that were me, I'd probably be crapping my pants in an overtime playoff game like that. Well, he might have almost literally been because I don't know if you saw, but he had spicy pork and broccoli between the first and second overtime. Like he wanted <laughs> something to eat. And I don't oh, know like man. why that was available, but he, uh, yeah, he was like, yeah, that in hindsight, that wasn't the best idea, but that's what he had in his stomach. And then he's sitting there watching the game like the rest of us, like just kind of seeing who's going to score. And all of a sudden he sees Casey DeSmith skating towards him. And they're like, Hey buddy, you got to go in. Oh man. I say I didn't see, I must've missed that. If you, I don't know if you tweeted it or whatever, the, uh, the spicy pork thing, but that's, that is a great bit of information. And now if he plays again, he's going to have to eat that every game. That might be like a superstitious thing. Yeah. And I, and I don't know how much Rangers fans care about this, but I mean, Deming really has an interesting story. Um, like he's a baker. He comes from a family of bakers. And, and a couple of years ago in the bubble, like he went viral because he was baking all these like pastries and pies for, I think he was with the Vancouver Canucks then. So he's really an interesting, quirky dude. And, and, and you know, a year ago, like I said, um, he didn't really get much interest from NHL teams, not even overseas. And he kind of was like, all right, this might be it. And he got this chance with the Penguins, only played two games for him in the regular season. And we'll see what's up with the Smith. Um, but this guy might be starting in game two. 
Yeah, so I guess I mean you haven't. Uh, we're, we're recording this before Matt has gone to, to. I don't know. Are they practicing today, or is it just media availability? Uh, it's an optional practice. Mike Sullivan is a football coach through and through when it comes to injuries, so um, he's probably going to take this one down to the wire Thursday about whether or not the Smith will be available. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, th- then the other thing you touched on that that to me was one of the standout things from a Pittsburgh perspective was. That top line. I, I was on your podcast earlier this week, and we talked about the Rangers post-trade deadline, adding Cop, adding Vetrano, looking like they had better forward depth. But the best line on Tuesday night, to me, hands down, was that Crosby-Gensel-Rust line. That they, they turned the game around for the Penguins. Crosby was outstanding. Gensel, to me, though, I mean... This is a guy who had 40 goals in the regular season, but he's also a pest. Like you could see that he was agitating the Rangers, getting under guys' skin. Like almost reminds me of Brad Marchand in some ways. But that line, they they were the best line on the ice last night, and they I felt like were the difference makers for the Penguins. And they are going to be a problem that the Rangers have to figure out how to deal with moving forward in this series. Yeah, they turned the game. Um, you know, they've been the Penguins' best line far and away all year. I know that. Down the stretch, they were tinkering with Ricard Raquel there instead of Rust. But um, they're dangerous in a lot of different ways. Uh, obviously, they got Sidney Crosby and then a 40-goal score in Gensel. But they're especially good in the cycle game. And I, 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 we get spat, stats from Sport Logic, which tracks a lot of stuff. And, and the Rangers were in the middle of the pack in defense against the cycle this year. Um, you could probably speak more to this about kind of the ebbs and flows of the season, but that did look like one area coming into the series where that line could make some hay. And sure enough, that's what they did. I mean, Gensel's an excellent four checker, which you alluded to Crosby's smart uh, in the four check. So those guys are good at just getting the pucks below the dots and going to work. So I don't know what the Rangers can do to combat that, but um, you know, to me, it was it was pretty clear, you know, Crosby and Gensel and to a lesser degree, Russ just kind of put the Penguins on their back there in the second period and turn that game around. Yeah, absolutely. And Mika Zibanejad said it after the game last night or early this morning that, you know, they're anticipating a long series now at this point and that they're going to have to figure out how to deal with them because they, they definitely had some uh, some pretty clear issues with them. And the Rangers sort of are in this situation where. You know, you could say the Zabanajad line is their top line because he's obviously their number one center, but their other line has Panarin and he's probably their most dynamic player. And so it's kind of like interchangeable, like it's 1A, 1B sort of situation. But if the Penguins are going to have this loaded top line, you're going to have to figure out matchups and figure out who works best against them. And you can't be getting hemmed in your own zone. You need to establish some offensive zone time of your own. And, you know, from the second period on that line really had its way. So we can look at the Rangers and say that they have more depth at forward, but the Penguins had the best line last night. And and then you, you touched on this a little bit when we spoke earlier in the week, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. You had kind of said that the bottom six for Pittsburgh has sort of been in flux in recent weeks and that this is something that they've been trying to figure out and haven't really found many answers to. So where do you see that going as far as the rest of the forwards for the Penguins beyond that top line? Yeah, I mean, I I do think we saw signs of life from some guys that have been disappointing this season, largely Casper Kapanen. Um, you know, he's been the biggest disappointment for the Penguins. And, you know, after Raquel went down, after taking that hit from uh, with the Lindgren, Ryan Lindgren, um, you know, he got more opportunity with Malkin and he made the most of it. But yeah, I mean, they've pretty much the bottom nine, the bottom three lines have just been shuffling guys in and out largely to get Malkin going. And, and, you know, as we know, Malkin got the game winner at five on five, but they've tried a bunch of different stuff and they really haven't had much of an identity on their lines. And, um, you know, it looks like, I mean, we'll see what happens with Raquel, but I'd say there's a very real chance he isn't available for game two. I don't know if Jason Zucker will be ready. So the Penguins depth is being tested and you see guys like Brian Boyle, you know, the former Ranger, um, he had to play a lot of minutes last night for a guy who's 37, 38 and is a big guy. So you wonder how that depth is going to hold up. But I do think there were some encouraging signs from um, guys like Heinen. I know he hit the crossbar at one point and Kapitan, um that gives hope that maybe the Penguins will turn the corner there. But uh, I still have very real questions about the depth, the forward depth of the Penguins, at least as it relates to scoring goals. 
I, I don't want to go too deep into into breaking down the specific play and all that, but I, I am I do want to hear your thoughts and I want to hear if the Penguins addressed it much after the game, because obviously I was with the Rangers and, and didn't really hear anything that they were saying. But the Heedle goal that was disallowed with a little over three minutes to go in the third period, Rangers up and down, whether it was players or Gerard Gallant said it was kind of a 50-50 call in their minds. I believe that there's a case you can make either way. I know Rangers fans are very upset that the call did not stand, given that it was allowed on the ice and then later uh, overturned. But yeah, you know, from my perspective, I think there's reasons to, to argue it either way. And I think whichever fan base the call had gone against was going to be pissed off. So your thoughts and what you heard from the Penguins as far as that call was concerned. Yeah, I mean... I, I always have a hard time with these goalie interference calls because it seems like the officials have a hard time. I mean, it, it's, it's a lot of gray area. It comes down to who initiates the contact. Um, I get these wrong like half the time. Now, some of it's because I'm a, like a former beer league goalie, so I'm always going <laughs> to err on the side of caution with the goalies. But it did look like Brian Dumoulin, the Penguins defenseman, gave Kako a little bit of a nudge into him. Yeah. Um, but – it's just, it's like, it's hard to say with the officiating with any certainty how these calls are going to go. But I will say the Penguins have a video coach named Andy Saucier, who is unbelievable. The Penguins are eight for eight or nine for nine on challenges this, this year, like offsides, interference. Like this man has a knack for knowing how these calls are going to go. Um, you know, he's the guy in the finals a few years ago, there was a controversial offsides call that the Penguins caught that led to the huge goal. And he was the guy who did it. So the Penguins basically said, you know, obviously they're not going to be like, oh, that was a bad call. But they, they basically <laughs> just pointed to like, look, anytime Andy Saucier and the video team says the challenge, we feel pretty good. So the Penguins have this ace in the hole there with their video staff. And he saw something that apparently the NHL saw as well. But you know, watching in real time, I was like, geez, I, I don't know if there's enough here to overturn this, especially when it looked like Dumoulin gave him a nudge. And, you know, also it's just hard to say, like, Kako's going to the net with the puck. Like, at a certain point, the player does, you know, have a right to kind of make a play to the net, and there's going to be some incidental contact. So, yeah, I, I think that call could have went either way, but for them to see enough there to overturn it, um, yeah, that you know, I can see why Rangers fans are miffed. Yeah, I – God, Rangers fans are like, I enjoyed the crowd. I will say I'm not just sucking up to your listeners. Like <laughs> I was dying all game with some of the chants and just like the the fans like cheering, standing ovation for getting an icing call. Correct. Like, yeah, Rangers yeah. fans brought it. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, they're, they're engaged. They're very, very passionate as I'm, as I'm sure you've seen. And yeah, it, you know, it comes down to trying to predict exactly what would have happened with no contact. Would he would the path have taken him into DeSmith and would he have definitively made contact with him or would he have been able to, you see his skates turning, but would he have been able to completely avoid it and not get the goalie interference call if it weren't for the contact with Dumoulin? It, it's really impossible to predict, which is why I think it makes it a 50-50 call. But as, as you touched on, I think the unpredictable nature of knowing what the NHL is going to do in these situations and the fact that it was originally ruled a goal and then overturned, I think that added to the controversy, but we'll, we'll leave that conversation for, for another day. I know the Rangers really want to put it in the rearview mirror and are already looking ahead to game two. And I guess the final thing I want to ask you about, which we also spoke about on your podcast earlier this week was we, I think all felt like coming into this, the Rangers were the better team. They had beaten them three straight in the regular season. They have the better depth, probably better talent, younger. A, a lot of Igor, obviously, is the big X factor. A lot of things to like about the Rangers. But I had said on your podcast that if the Penguins had a chance, it was going to be putting a dent in the Rangers' confidence early, get letting doubt creep into their head by stealing a game or two at Madison Square Garden. They accomplished that with the game one victory on Tuesday, which I think puts all the pressure on the Rangers in game two. Game two, I, I don't know if we can go as far as calling it a must win, but it's pretty damn close for the Rangers. So what does this do as far as your thought process on where the Penguins stand? Because I think we felt like, hey, you know, maybe the Rangers could win in five or six games, and now all of a sudden the Penguins take game one. So do you feel differently about their chances given what happened on Tuesday? 
Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it, it kind of solidifies the belief that the Penguins would put up a fight, which, you know, people outside of Pittsburgh might think that sounds crazy. But, I mean, this team sputtered down the stretch. They were completely they, – they looked stale. They looked tired. They looked disinterested, um, you know, up until the, the final game of the regular season. So, you know, the thought was, like, can these guys flip a switch? And then you look at, at – some of the, just the matchup advantages, like the depth of the Rangers to Sturkin, I think would have given them a decisive edge over Tristan Jari. And now we're talking about their second and third string goalies. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I try to be pretty objective and I was like, you know, I think the Rangers are going to win this series. Um, but I do think the Penguins would put up a fight and they did. And what's encouraging um, was that the top line broke through. There were signs of life from the depth. Um, you know, they have that experience. That's one thing they have in their favor coaching as well so um this just solidified that yeah the the penguins aren't going to go down with a whimper because i mean this could be the last run for malkin Latang, and crosby together so um you know if i still had to pick like you know obviously the odds are better now that the penguins are going to win the series because they took one but i still think the rangers if they can play better than they did in that second period and play more like they did in the first period um you have to think the goaltending edge ultimately will will tip the series back into their favor because I mean Shosturkin's incredible, um, and you know I mean shoot it took the Penguins eighty six shots to finally win that game so um, that's a long winded way of saying uh, buckle up I think it's going to be a great series um, but I don't know how much that that changes what I thought going in. I would give the Penguins goalie some credits too, credit too, because I, I think that they both, DeSmith and Deming, played well in that game, well enough to give the Penguins a chance to win. And now we have a series on our chance. I, I'm still leaning Rangers, but game two will change that. If the Rangers lose game two, I'm switching my pick. <laughs> I, know, yeah. I, I know you're not supposed to do that in the middle of the series, but if the Rangers lose game two, I'm probably switching my pick, which is why I think game two is so important and we're all looking forward to it. And we appreciate your time, Matt. Hope you enjoy your run today. Hope you enjoy your time in New York City. Let me know if there's anything I can do to make your uh, stay more enjoyable, recommendations, whatever. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon down the line, but it's going to be fun, I think. Absolutely, Vince. Thank you. Okay, big thanks to Matt for coming on the show. We're both super busy, as pretty much anybody who covers the NHL is right now. But Matt is awesome about any time I reach out to him. Always makes himself available, and that is very, very much appreciated. And I think, you know, his his knowledge of the team, and even you could hear, he's very objective about this stuff. I feel like he does a really good job of sort of telling it how it is. Definitely critical of the Penguins sometimes. He's been telling me leading into this series that he felt like it was going to be tough for them to beat the Rangers. And even coming off of that win, I think he's still pretty level-headed about their chances. I personally still feel like the, the Rangers are the favorite in this series. I picked them to win before the series started. I'm not going to back out just because of one game. But as I said to Matt, game two, if it doesn't go their way, all of a sudden I think a lot of doubt starts creeping in. And that would be a really, really tough spot for the Rangers. And I might consider changing my pick at that point. But I, I have a feeling that they are going to bounce back well. I, I think that they saw the formula. They've seen that they can be outplay this team when they're at the top of their game. I think they're better than the Penguins. And so I think that that gives them some confidence to, to from their perspective, hopefully bounce back and get a result in game two. And all of a sudden you feel like you've refreshed yourselves and restarted the series going back to Pittsburgh. Now, we're going to shift to your Twitter questions. I'm going to try to breeze through them quickly. Listen, Crazy schedule these days. I'm going to be away for Mother's Day. I feel I know it's not really my fault, but I feel like a jerk. I'm not going to be here to celebrate with the misses. I feel terrible about it. So tonight I'm actually taking her out for sort of an early, nice Mother's Day dinner. Going to try to completely unplug from work because I have not really unplugged from work at all recently. So that is my hope. So I'm going to try to breeze through some questions because we've already put in quite a few hours today of work after putting in a lot of hours last night. You guys know I'm long-winded, so I say I'm going to breeze through these questions, and I'm questioning myself as to whether I'm actually going to be able to accomplish that goal, but we're going to try it. And with that, we're going to dive right in. And our first question comes from Big Lou, who wants to know, with this being your first playoff game that you've covered as a beat writer, what was your impression of the atmosphere and the crowd at the Garden? Was it what you expected, 
or was it more or less noisy slash energetic? I was a little surprised, Lou, that there weren't more people in their seats for warm-ups. Warm-ups was pretty subdued. I mean, people cheered, obviously, when the Rangers came out. But I've seen places, and and I even feel like I remember this in the past with the Rangers, that they were pretty packed for warm-ups and that the people were really buzzing at that point and trying to feed the team some energy. I, I thought it was a little less crowded at that point than maybe I would have expected. But by the time the anthem was being finished, electric, absolutely super loud. The energy in the building was really great. There were lulls, you'd like to think. I think it's weird because when you're there as a fan, you sort of feel like, oh, the whole time the crowd is super loud and super into it. But when you're sitting up in the press box and you sort of have this overview of the whole arena... There are times when you notice the crowd gets a little quiet. Maybe it's nervous energy, whatever it might be. But as I mentioned earlier in the show, the two goals, the Kreider goal and then the Heedle goal that wasn't, those two times were some of the loudest that I've heard it as a reporter in that building. Now, I've never covered a playoff game in that building before, so you would expect that, I think. But the building was shaking at that point. And a lot of people hung in there. I'm, I'm kind of paying attention as each overtime goes by, wondering how many people might get tired. You got to go to work in the morning. You got school in the morning, whatever it might be. But a lot of people hung in there, and I thought that that was pretty cool too. So listen, we'll see how it goes from this point forward. I think from the players, the louder you guys can be, the more consistent you can be involved in the game. They love that. That's only going to benefit them. But I also understand, you know, sometimes you're taking a sip of your drink or sometimes you're nervous or sometimes there's not as much going on as others and you might get a little quieter. But overall, I I thought it was pretty energetic and pretty cool and definitely some goosebumps moments. Definitely a really, really great experience to be in the building for that. It's one of those moments where you you pinch yourself and you're like, this job is pretty cool. So so I was happy to be there. and, And for the most part, you guys brought it. All right, let's go to give... Gardner a cup or Gartner a cup who wants to know about the fourth line is getting a lot of ozone starts sometimes against the Penn's fourth line why if they can take if they cannot take defensive draws against the Penguins top lines what is their purpose other than to take ozone starts away from the Rangers top six so I've had a few people ask me about this today and, and it's definitely a valid question I think when when I looked it up Ryan Reeves had like six or seven ozone starts. So that's a little more than I think ideally you would want. But you also have to remember, they played 105 plus minutes in this game and Reeves only got 16 minutes of ice time. I was shocked when I saw that he didn't get over 20 minutes. So Gallant leaned on the top six. Everybody in the top six, I think except for Vetrano, played over 30 minutes. So at some point, the deeper the game goes, you have to manage your spots. And if Gallant didn't feel that the Zabanajad line or the Strom line had had enough rest and had just come off the, the ice recently, even if there's an ozone start coming up or not, you gotta you gotta manage and you gotta sometimes bite the bullet and say, well, I might not ideally want my fourth line out in this situation, but their legs are fresher than the alternative. And who knows how long this game can go. You can't risk completely burning those guys out. So Game flow is definitely, definitely a part of it. But we've talked to Glenn about this before. It came up in the conversation right before game one. He is adamant that he trusts all four of his lines and that he wants to roll all four lines. And he said, I don't care if my fourth line is out there against their first line. People might criticize me for it, but I trust them. I think part of that is messaging to the players. I think he knows that that instills confidence in all of his players. Ryan Reeves has talked about that before, how Gallant is unlike any coach he's ever played for in that regard. So I think that there is some there's some emotional, uh, mental benefit that the Rangers get from feeling like their, their coach isn't scared to put anyone out there in any situation. I'm sure we could pinpoint a couple times where you would have rather had Mika's line or Strom's line out there. So again, it's a valid question, but When you look at the overall minutes played, Reeves played less than half the amount of time that that Strome and Kopp and Panarin and Zabanajad and Kreider played. So when you're giving those guys that many minutes, you have to consider. You might just look and say, okay, 
Reeves's line got the fourth line got an ozone start here. Why? But my question would be, well, when did Zabanajad's line come off? When did Strom's line co- come off? Had they only been on the bench for a matter of seconds or a minute, and, and they were still huffing and puffing and, and needed a little extra time? G- Gallant is the one who's on the bench and can tell how tired the guys look after a shift, and, and he has to make those calls in the moment that okay we'd be better served with our top players out here or my top players would be better served waiting one more shift before I throw them out there because they look gassed right now. So I think all of those factors have to be considered. And, and it's one of those things where, you know, you can look at the numbers and say, okay, there were this many ozone starts, but there's there's a lot of human elements that go into it within the flow of a game. All right, let's move on to Adam Groden, who wrote, Vince, do you believe there will be lineup changes? He mentioned specifically Justin Braun and Dryden Hunt in game two. And if so, what kind of effect will it have in the style of play we see on the ice? Adam, I I don't know if there are going to be lineup changes, and I don't think Galant is going to tell us. And with no practice, it's impossible for me to see. Like, I can give you guys a little insight here from from just how I figure this stuff out versus what Gallant is telling us. Gallant, leading into game one, kept saying, I don't know what my fourth line is going to be. I haven't decided on my lineup. But I watched practice on Sunday and Monday, and it was very clear to me from watching practice that the fourth line was going to be Goudreau, Rooney, and Reeves because every time they started a new drill, the first line to go out there when it was the fourth line's turn was Goudreau, Rooney, and Reeves. Now, Hunt would rotate in, but that told me, just from an observation standpoint, what it was going to be, which is why I reported it, why we put it in our projected lineup, and why it's what you saw once the puck dropped on Tuesday night. Same thing with Braun and Nemeth. They've played it out like a competition, but more often than not, we've seen Patrick Nemeth be the guy practicing next to Braden Schneider, which is why I also felt confident that Nemeth was going to get the start in Game 1. Will they make changes for game two? I sort of think it's unlikely with the forwards. I thought the fourth line in the first period did their jobs. I thought that they were they were physical, which is what you know Gallant wants from them. Really heavy on the four check. Gallant said himself that he liked the way that they played early on in that game. They faded. They weren't able to sustain that, which is part of the problem for the Rangers as the game wore on. And maybe at some point, if Reeves keeps starting strong but not finishing strong, you might see Hunt swapped in for him. But I kind of don't think they're going to pull the trigger on that this early. Reeves, as Gallant pointed out the other day, is an important guy for the Rangers for the stuff that doesn't show up in the stat sheet. He, his, he is viewed absolutely as a leader in that locker room. He is beloved by the guys in that locker room. He brings a lot of energy, whether you see him screaming at Igor Shesterkin before they come out for warm-ups, whether it's chirping at the other team, whether it's the stuff that he's saying in the locker room. Gallant and, and his teammates view Reeves as a really important guy, and I think they want to give him every chance to succeed. With that said, if there comes a point where they feel like Hunt and his speed elements and his stanima are going to be more of a necessity than Reeves for his toughness and his leadership, I, I could definitely see them making that switch, but I, I don't think I see it happening quite yet. The The defense thing, though, is one area where I think maybe it's a possibility, and that would be switching Braun for Nemeth. I did not think Nemeth had a very good game in game one, not just taking two penalties, and I thought that they were deserved penalties, but also the fact that he was on the ice for the final goal. Now, you hate to just point to a guy being on the ice and say it was only that guy's fault. It's usually more of a, of a five-man thing when a goal is given up, especially late in overtime. Everybody's gassed and all that stuff. But Nemeth was definitely out of position on that final goal. And just overall, again, I did not think he had a great game. I, I thought he made some good, physical, strong plays, but I also thought he made some mistakes I thought the penalties obviously hurt the Rangers. And so maybe I could see Braun getting swapped in for Nemeth. But I've thought that before, and Gallant has been pretty loyal to Nemeth. So maybe I'm wrong on that one. I, I don't know. But if there was one spot where I where I was going to pick, I would guess the most likely would be on defense with maybe Braun coming in for Nemeth. Or if Lindgren can't play, then both of those guys are going to play. All right. Three questions in 12 minutes, not so bad for a long-winded guy like me. And with that, we're going to call it so I can go and get ready for dinner. I actually have to do a quick 
SNY hit in about a half hour, so I will, I'll have to do that first, but I promise to the missus that as soon as I am done with that, there will be no more work from the day, and we're going to have a nice night out, some wine, some good food, enjoy ourselves, and then definitely go to sleep early because my butt is pretty tired. So with that, that'll do it for this week's episode. Thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you to Matt for coming on the show once again. I might have to start paying him if I ask him to come on the show again in the future. I will let you guys know about next week. I'm not going to have the usual Thursday release because Game 5 is scheduled for Wednesday, so there's no way that I'm going to be able to record Wednesday night after that game. I may do it in advance of Game 5, which would be a Wednesday release, or I might wait to see what happens in Game 5 and then record on Thursday for a Friday morning release. A little torn on if you guys have any opinions, let me know. I can be swayed one way or the other, but I will keep you posted via Twitter and all that, and we will definitely have an episode at some point next week. And until then, try to manage your blood pressure. Try to enjoy this as much as you can, and we'll see what happens. It's going to be interesting. If, if Tuesday night made me think anything, it's that we might be in for a long one. I think we're definitely going to be in for some drama, definitely going to be in for some ups and downs, and, and we'll see where it takes us. But it was a lot of fun. I'm sure it would have been more fun for you guys if the Rangers came out with a win. But playoff hockey is here. And the beauty is we don't know what's going to come next. Have a great night, everybody, and I'll talk to you next week.